0: This is episode number 332 Positive Medicine with Dr. Jordan Feingold. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well being. And I'm your host, Sonia.
1: In medicine, there really is no singularly defined definition of health or well-being. We, we have well characterized all of the diseases, but just treating disease leaves us at sort of this baseline state of existing without an illness. But what is left and what might be possible for us when we're really thriving? Like I said, full body, embodied from head to toe. And that's where revamp comes in. So the ingredients are the same. What I, what I love about how this acronym plays out is that relationships are number one.
0: Before we get into it, I want to tell you about an amazing company that has changed my routine and how I feel. I'm talking about an incredible evidence-based supplement company called Prevenix. Their mission is creating health for everyone and also serving malnourished children with their Get Health, Give Health program. I started taking Prevenex and a bunch of their different supplements, but especially their multivitamin on a daily basis. What initially drew me to Prevenex is that they source the highest quality, most clinically effective ingredients at levels where studies show you can get clinical benefits. I put a lot of thought about what I put into my body. Health is one of my top values, and I'm also an elite athlete, so I'm not going to ingest something that is going to harm me or that isn't going to help me be my best bottom line is I trust Prevanex given the data. But the one thing that has really stood out to me compared to other multivitamins that I've tried is that I felt the benefits of this product. I had COVID back in September, and I unfortunately had long COVID, and I felt tired and like I was underwater for months and months and months. And it was really frustrating and really difficult. And I noticed that when I started taking Previnix, I started feeling better. And that has been an upward spiral for me in the last six weeks. And I keep taking that multivitamin on a daily basis. And now my husband takes it too, because we have more energy. And I'm so grateful for this product because I need energy with having two really small children and training and my business. And I'm just so grateful that I found Prevenix And I just wanted to make sure that you knew about it too. So I encourage you to try it and feel the benefits for yourself. They also offer a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you try it and you don't feel the benefits, it's zero risk. To top it off, they're offering a coupon code. If you use Sonia 15, that is Sonia 15 to get 15% off your first order on their website at previnex.com. You can try their multivitamin and you can also check out some of their other products. And I'll be telling you more about those in the coming weeks one last little heads up before we get into today's episode. It's not too late to sign up for my Galvanize Your Goals workshop that is on Saturday. And it is all about how to get clarity and an action plan around setting goals. Because a lot of times we have things in our mind that we say we're going to do. The New Year's is always a great time for a fresh start. I want to do more mobility work. I want to organize my computer. Those are some of my New Year's resolutions But you don't have a plan on how to actually execute that. And it just becomes this thing in your mind that you want to do instead of this thing that you're actually doing. So if you want to join the workshop, go to sonyalooney.com slash goals. And if this is also something that you want to do, but maybe you're just too busy because it's on a weekend and I got the day wrong, also let me know because there is an option for me to do this workshop again if more people want in. All right. So today's episode is one that I'm really excited about because positive psychology is one of my favorite topics. And I discovered it, gosh, back in probably 2010 or 2011 when I started giving talks on endurance races and some of these crazy adventures I was having. And the biggest question people kept asking me was, how are you so positive and resilient through it all? I knew what I was doing, but I wanted to reverse engineer how I was getting through some of these difficult events so that I could help others do the same thing in their lives. And it also helped me to be able to name what I was actually doing and then learn more and get more tools. That is where I found the field of positive psychology. And I've spent the last 10 plus years immersing myself in it. So I was so excited whenever I got to talk to Jordan Feingold on the last podcast that you might have heard that we recorded with Scott Barry Coffin on their book that came out, it's a workbook called Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt, and you can listen to that podcast, in the and it's in the show notes. But today, I sat down with Jordan to talk about positive psychology, and more specifically, how she is applying it to medicine. And even if you're not in the field of medicine, all of the topics covered in this podcast apply more broadly. And that is one of the reasons I love positive psychology, because all of the concepts of well-being are things that we can use on a daily basis. So let me tell you about Jordan. She is a medical doctor. She has her master's in applied positive psychology from Penn. And she is also a psychiatry resident at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. We talked about positive psychology and how Jordan is applying it to medicine. We talked about her REVAMP framework, which I'll tell you about in a sec, and the importance of positive relationships. REVAMP is defined as a six-pillar framework consisting of relationships, engagement, vitality, accomplishment, meaning, and positive emotions. And those are all pillars that apply broadly to well-being. Jordan developed and teaches an elective course called Positive Medicine at Mount Sinai and co-founded a trainee well-being curriculum called PEERS, which is about practice enhancement, engagement, resilience, and support. She also co-founded Positive Psychology for Physicians and an online well-being course for clinicians. And as I mentioned, she co-authored the book Choose Growth with Scott Barry Kaufman, and her goal is to shift the focus of medicine from treatment to well-being. I'm super excited for you to listen to this podcast and for all of the key takeaways that you can start applying right away. Some key things that you're going to walk away with is learning about positive psychology and her revamp framework, as I mentioned, but also learning about something called the reciprocity ring and where to start when you're starting from a place of burnout. And I think a lot of us have experienced burnout, especially given the last few years and how stressful those have been. If you're looking for the difference between good and great in performance, I have a Mindset Academy called the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. You can find that at Sonyalooney.com and also at moxieandgrit.com. And it's all of my best mindset skills and mental toughness skills to help you unleash your performance. And it's geared towards athletes. It covers a wide range of topics like how to set an actual performance goal that is based on the process and not the outcome, how to deal with pre-race nerves, how to build confidence, some different types of breath work that you can practice, and so much more. There's also a workbook that you get with it, and you can get that again at sonyalooney.com and find the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy, and it's also in the show notes. If you like topics on high performance and well-being, make sure you're also on my weekly newsletter at sonyalooney.com newsletter. Okay, let's get into the show with Jordan Feingold. Jordan, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you, Sonia, for
0: having me back. I loved our conversation about Choose Growth. And for those who haven't picked up the workbook yet, make sure you pick it up. But today, we're talking about something different. We are talking about your revamp program and really about positive psychology and well-being and positive medicine. So I guess to start us out, what is positive psychology?
1: So positive psychology is defined as the empirical science of well-being and human flourishing. And this is a model that was formally introduced to the psychological community in the late 90s when Martin Seligman was president of the American Psychological Association. And he announced his tenure as president, introducing and ushering in a wave of psychology that could do more than just get rid of what's wrong with people, but actually promote what's right with people. And up until that point, the formal psychological community, psychologists and even psychiatrists, the the world that I live in in the medical sphere was really fixated on the problems that afflict human beings on depression and post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever that was called around the war of the time, shell shock, or it had different manifestations and names at different times and he and his colleagues namely mike chicksentmeheim and christopher peterson and many other psychologists came together to really create a new field within psychology and it has grown and developed into you know organizations of tha- many hundreds and thousands of organizations and practitioners and researchers studying concepts through very scientific methods and really novel, amazing research methods to study the, the best parts of the human experience.
0: Yeah, I think that when people are listening or thinking about empirical data, and then they think about well-being and flourishing, they're thinking, how do you actually study that? Mm-hmm. So what are some of the, the elements that
1: they study? Sure. So, and I just, I do want to say that there were many precursors to positive psychology, most proximally before... Marty and positive psychology came the humanistic psychologist Abraham Maslow, who Scott and I write about but it really is Scott's mentor who he never met, and before that lots of ancient wisdom and Buddhism and philosophy, Aristotle. So the ideas that we study in positive psychology are not necessarily novel. Marty writes in his his book The Hope Circuit that positive psychology is like old wine in new bottles. And what is so interesting about these new bottles is this question of what are the research methods that we're using in positive psychology. So you know, at the, the most basic level, it's really it's led to the development and validation of self-report questionnaires, which is kind of like the the bread and butter of psychosocial research, asking patients, you know, on Likert scales, tell tell us, you know, on a scale of zero to five, like how well do you feel, essentially? That's, that's not actually a question, but um, there are many, many scales that look at constructs like life satisfaction or the elements of well-being that Marty Seligman calls PERMA. Peggy Kern developed the PERMA profiler. Things like personal growth and character strengths and virtues, um, positive relationships, social support, gratitude, grit, which is passion and perseverance for long term goals. So, they're like all of these constructs, scientists and researchers have developed scales to evaluate them in a self report way. Then, there are really cool, novel lexical analyses that I, I'm quite familiar with the work of Johannes Eichstadt, who was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania while I was there as an undergrad, and he uses lexical analysis. So basically a plug-in to an individual social media account or text messages to look at the language that individuals are using and how certain words, which are coded in a database as being more positive or more negative, and how those words are used or associated with certain health outcomes. So... That's one method of like actually looking at what people are saying and doing more language lexical analyses. And of course, then there are dozens of randomized controlled trials actually looking at clinical outcomes for patients with various mental illnesses and indices of functioning in the workplace or functioning in terms of symptomatology of, of illnesses and how interventions can m- differentially move the needle on on different sorts of groups.
0: Yeah. So you got your master's in applied positive psychology and became an expert in this and then went on to become a medical doctor. So how are you incorporating positive psychology into medicine?
1: It's really interesting because I had always I always known I wanted to be a doctor and it's because I loved science and I loved helping people and I always sought to have a high degree of meaning in my career, which I knew I would be spending a lot of hours every day doing. And I, when I just thought as an undergraduate and as a very naive young person about what that meant, I always thought I was just going to help people be healthier. I I knew I wanted to work with young people. I suspected I would want to work with children and adolescents. And I always really loved working with that population, babysitting, volunteering, just realizing how powerful it is to meet someone at that young, early stage of life and how you can really change the trajectory of a young person's life. So I thought I was going to be a pediatrician and just really be able to talk to my patients about how to be healthy, how to be their best self, how to to thrive in their lives and make great decisions about um, how to take care of themselves and how they think about their identity. And then I discovered that positive psychology existed as a field that is distinct from medicine that is all about promoting what's right with people and that medicine is still rooted in this biomedical model of getting rid of and focusing of what's wrong with people. So I decided to go study positive psychology because of that, because I, I realized that healthcare was still very fixated on this problem-focused paradigm. So that's a lot of background. But to say that as soon as I went to medical school, I realized there was this massive need, not only to help patients be well, but that there was this crisis among clinicians themselves, that clinicians were experiencing astronomical rates of burnout, depression, anxiety, and even suicide. And that Physicians were more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than the average American, which just blew my mind. If we're supposed to be the people that are, you know, ushering in health or at least treating disease, and that struck me as as sort of the first way to bring positive psychology into the healthcare field would be to working with the clinicians themselves. Because of course, the goal is for this to reach all of our populations and all of our patient populations. But until the the doctors understand these principles and can apply them in their own lives, how do we expect that individuals and patients will be able to uptake them. So it's kind of like training the practitioners and hopefully enhancing medical education to reflect some of these principles. So that was my mentality going into medical school. And then, of course, you're a medical student. You're at the very bottom of the totem pole. I had to learn, and I'm still learning as a resident, just how the system works and the whole the whole system of medical education as a medical student and now as a resident and as I emerged out of residency into practice, I've sort of taken the approach of let's work with the population that I am in. So I started as a medical student applying positive psychology in two particular ways. One was through the development of a course called Positive Medicine that any any student, resident, faculty member at the institution, I am Mount Sinai in New York City could take. this, I've been now teaching this class for the last five years, and I'm hopefully teaching it again this semester. And this is like a deep dive into positive medicine, which is the applied science of positive psychology in what we do in medicine, and the various facets that contribute to well-being. And this is like really scientific and very experiential, and it requires a really high degree of engagement from the participants. They're showing up on their own time. Another thing that I was able to do in my years as a medical student was to create what is actually now a co-create with a a really amazing team, a well-being curriculum for medical students, which is actually now built in and baked into our medical curriculum at my institution. And that program is called Peers. It stands for practice enhancement, engagement, resilience, and support. And it's real, it's a group-based program where, and now I've since handed this off, and my institution has actually invested in a faculty member to run the program, which we started as students, kind of just like going by the seat of our pants. And now it's a really robust program in the medical school and has expanded to our residency programs and PhD programs where small groups of students led by a peer facilitator who are specifically trained uh, learn positive psychology topics and essentially support one another in a structured but very flexible group setting at at increments throughout the year to meet the trainees where they are based on the the stressors they are facing within uh, their education. And it's mandatory for the medical students, at least it's optional for the residents. And we we the time is protected within the curriculum when it's not COVID. There's food provided by the institution to really create and normalize this idea that we need a space to process and talk about what's going well, what's not going well, and not just vent, but really find evidence-based solutions to, to manage some of these stressors.
0: Yeah. I mean, physicians have to take on so much. And compassion fatigue is a real thing, being overstretched and not sleeping enough and not being able to not only physically take care of yourself, but mentally take care of yourself. You have this REVAMP program, which has six different ingredients. What are those different ingredients?
1: Yeah. So REVAMP is... I always say it's an acronym and it's a call to action for doctors to understand the ingredients of well-being and how we can nurture our own well-being. And these six elements are infused throughout the PEERS program, and they're also the core fundamentals of each individual class of the positive medicine course that I teach. So, and and these ingredients are derived from the synthesis of many different constructs of well-being that I analyzed as part of my master's thesis, but really um, takes, most proximally Marty Seligman's PERMA model. And you'll hear the overlapping constructs and then the vitality ingredient, which I think is super important. It's it's very pronounced in various other theories of well-being, predating the PERMA model. And there's an, another fantastic alum of the MAP program, Amelia Zivotskaya, and I might be butchering her last name, who has talked to, about the importance of vitality and completely agree. She's actually, she actually I think coined Perma V before I came up with Revamp. Can I so, can I stop
0: you real quick to have you yeah. go through the acronym Perma because the listeners may be wondering.
1: Sure. So Perma stands for positive relationships, engagement, relationships, meaning, and positive emotion. So there's five ingredients that Martin Seligman has studied and has come to. They are the five ingredients of well-being. And this is probably the most widely used construct within the positive psychology community. And of course, as a physician who is deeply invested in promoting physical health of patients and acknowledging that the mind and the body are so deeply inextricably linked, what I added and what others, such as Amelia, have added prior is this V element, the vitality element. Mm -hmm. So when I was sitting you know, writing out these elements and trying to define them as part of my capstone specifically for health applications in healthcare and the, where there is an evidence for, for how these concepts interact with physical health, longevity, and thriving, you know, head to toe. What I realized is that when you add the V, it actually spells out revamp, which is, I thought was just this perfect way of thinking about this because, in medicine, there really is no singularly defined definition of health or well-being. We, we have well characterized all of the diseases, but just treating disease leaves us at sort of this baseline state of existing without an illness. But what about, but what is left and what might be possible for us when we're really thriving, like I said, full body embodied from head to toe? And that's where revamp comes in. So the ingredients are the same. What I, what I love about how this acronym plays out is that relationships are number one. And I always tell my students, if you're going to drop my course, drop it after the second lecture, because that's when we start to talk about relationships. Because we know that positive relationships are the single most important ingredient for well-being, and longevity even um, across the lifespan, more important than talent or IQ or intelligence or our genetic makeup.
0: Yeah. When we get busy, like the very first thing that seems to go is relationships.
1: (laughs) And it's definitely easy to sacrifice because we can come so myopic on ourselves. And I, in the revamp model, I actually really make the effort to conceptualize not just interpersonal relationships, which is obviously the bulk of it and what's so critical, but also the relationship that we do have with ourselves and conceptualizing, you know, our inner dialogue and bringing self-compassion in and really honoring that we have a relationship to ourselves. And this is sort of where we talk about, like, if I'm translating this to, my work with Scott, like the self-esteem piece, and and like I said, self-compassion work. So for me, that's all encompassed in the relationships bucket. And that includes connection as a need and that higher order um, orientation to the world of love. So that's relationships and what we do in my course is go through the data on relationships, on the importance of positive relationships for health and well-being, how we can enhance our relationships and connections with our patients, with our colleagues, to have more to better functioning teams within the workplace. And really to under thinking through like when we're most satisfied at work as clinicians, for most people, for most clinicians with the exception maybe of those who have chosen work that is not super interpersonal like pathology and radiology. But even for those folks, most of the, when they feel the most alive at work, it's when they're having positive interactions with other people. So we think about how to really promote those, how to put them at the center of our work. And not only that, but how to enhance relationships with our family members and those, our loved ones outside of work as well, in addition to the relationship we have with ourselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, I think that this relationships piece can extend or th- this whole revamp program can extend past the medical community and like the people most people listening can probably see ways that this relates to their life too. And I'm excited to learn more about the rest of the acronyms and how they are improving our the medical community and just broader than that. And it took a lot of courage for you to put your hand up and say, hey, wait a second here. Like we're looking at treating disease, but we're not looking at the mind-body connection and we're missing a huge piece of what it means to be healthy and how that can extend to patients and how we show up for patients who are ultimately trying to help them find health too.
1: A hundred percent. I think there's two threads that I became really clear to me when I was going through medical school. One was this fragmentation of the human body that you know of course we have to learn medicine and we have to treat patients and be specialists and really hone the craft in one field but what i realized is that it it can feel really hyper segmented that you know you have the liver specialist for the liver the heart specialist <laughs> for the heart the kidney specialist for the kidney and what that can lead to is sometimes quite a reductive view of of the human condition and it recapitulates this fragmentation and certainly the mind-body separation that has been at really the basis of our field, at least in Western medicine. My understanding is that Eastern medicine, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine is much more uplifting of the, the mind-body synergism. And increasingly, I hope that we see that in Western medicine because it's absolutely undeniable. and. So that was one thread, the hypersegmentation of of the human. And two was just this total lack of psychology embedded in medical education. Like there's really, um, I found it so surprising. I was a humanities major in undergrad, but I don't think that's the case for most doctors. Like most doctors come from science backgrounds. We have a lot of prerequisites to take. It kind of makes sense to major in like chemistry or biology, I was a health and societies major with a minor in sociology, and I would think and I would hope that doctors really understand the psychological state of a patient or even the psychological state of themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we see is you get all these really high achieving, really successful young people coming into a profession where they're... In, to one extent, competing against one another to do the best job at saving patients, the, the incentives are just kind of misaligned. So um, one of my goals in creating some of these programs and really starting with medical students, and now I see the need to really teach these things to pre-med students, is to really shift the narrative and help people see that we're treating human beings. We're not just treating gallbladders. <laughs> yeah. And that even just the power of human connection is an incredibly therapeutic intervention for a patient. When they are in pain and they are suffering and they are looking for help, one of the best things we can do is see them as a human being and make a connection and let them know we're there for them. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: there's a robust literature that demonstrates that, especially for this class of you know what we call illness without disease. That's what my mentor Douglas Drossman mm-hmm. calls them. These conditions that we don't yet understand fully, where they exist in the body, yet they cause a great amount of distress. For example, irritable bowel syndrome is like the mm-hmm. cornerstone, um, where there's nothing. If you look in endoscopically or you do a biopsy, you know a lot of doctors will, will look at will look at those and say, "There's nothing wrong with you." Congratulations to a patient. <laughs> but the patient is, so they don't have disease, you know, they don't have pathophysiology that you could see under a microscope. And yet they are suffering with debilitating symptoms that keep them from functioning in school or at work. They can't eat their favorite foods. They can't go out for dinner and socialize. And one second they're fine. And the next second they're in an incredible amount of pain and and there's a lot of stigma around it. You know, we're not trained in medical school about how to manage conditions where there's illness without disease. And that, I think, is just a huge opportunity to help everyone, whether there is disease or not.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people listening have probably had some sort of experience here where... And I know I have, where it's like, I know that there's something wrong with me, but nothing shows up on my blood test. Everything checks out okay, but there's still something wrong. And it's incredibly frustrating. And you start losing that sense of autonomy whenever you you feel like there's nothing you can do anymore. And nobody understands what's going on.
1: Totally. Like the expert says there's nothing wrong. So like, am I crazy? Is this (sighs) all in? And I think a lot of patients hear from their doctors and I've seen it as a psychiatrist. um, You know, this doctor basically told me directly or implied that this is all in my head. And they're getting sent to psychiatry because the doctors are like, there's nothing wrong with this person, fix them or help us because we don't know how. And even just how language can be so helpful, just a shift in the language of "We not there's nothing wrong with you or this is all in your head, but we know you don't have cancer or we know this is not inflammatory bowel disease. And yet we understand that you are suffering and we are here to help you and try to figure out what is going to help alleviate your distress. And even just that reframe from there's nothing wrong with you to it's not X, Y, Z, here's what I think might be going on can be incredibly powerful in partnering with a patient who is, who is suffering.
0: Yeah. And I think like coming back to being a physician who is communicating with patients, having that deeper understanding of yourself, like that relationship to self that you were talking about, so that you can have a better bedside manner or a better way of communicating, especially if you're feeling kind of burnt out, how can you respond in a way that is going to be health promoting for the patient instead of completely demoralizing?
1: Exactly, Sonia. And one of the core features of burnout is depersonalization. It's starting to see people as objects rather than for their whole humanity. So, you know, the example I give is like, instead of seeing Mrs. Jones, you see the diabetic in bed three, and Mm. people become reduced to their symptoms and their whatever is wrong with them. And it can certainly undermine the experience that they feel being treated by us as doctors. And similarly, we might have a patient and have countertransference towards them, which is we we have feelings towards them that are probably related to another relationship we have in our life. So I might have a patient who reminds me of my mother, or I might have a patient who really reminds me of my sister. And depending on my relationship with those people, I may feel more compassionate towards those people and give them sort of extra TLC sort of driven by my subconscious, or I might be very dismissive of them and not want to let them get too close to me because I'm sort of triggered by what they bring up in me in relationship to that family member they remind me of. So it's so important, not just for psychiatrists, but for all doctors to be aware of what our patients are bringing up in us in this psychological way that doesn't really get taught to us in the current educational settings.
0: Okay, so I think we should move on to the engagement piece. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I, we could spend, I think it, it'd be really fun, but we could spend like an entire podcast on each One. letter in the acronym.
1: <laughs> so I'll try to go faster through the rest of them. Because like I said, relationships really are the most important. The next is engagement. Uh, you know, I, mean, I say that and then I think all of them are so important engagement. So the ability to feel deeply immersed in the work that we're doing as clinicians. And like you said, this can transcend uh, just the healthcare space. So I talk about three core ingredients within engagement, which is mindfulness. So being present in the moment without judging, noticing, watching the moments unfold flow which is being totally immersed and in the zone in the work that we're doing sort of getting lost in the flow state when our actions and when our actions and awareness are merged in this way when our skill and challenge level are perfectly matched so that we feel really at the top of our game and the third is the using our strengths in what we do So using our our character strengths, not just our talents or skills, but really the best parts of our character. And those to me are like the three different pathways to being deeply immersed in the work that we're doing. All of these are teachable and we can provide individuals with strategies on how to be more mindful and how to use more of our strengths and how to sort of make decisions that can facilitate flow for ourselves. So I'll, I'll pause there to see if you have any any questions or reflections on engagement.
0: Yeah, I have something interesting to add. I've been doing a bit of more research on motivation, and I was reading about task orientation versus ego orientation as it relates to motivation. And there, in flow theory, suggests that if you have a high task orientation, you tend to get more into that flow state that you were talking to, and you can you can even have a high ego orientation as well. But as long as that task orientation piece is high, then you can be more engaged. And this makes me think about the competition piece that you're talking about among physicians, which could be ego-oriented. But as long as they still have that task orientation, they can still be in that flow state.
1: One way that I have my students think about this is a little axiom that my SAT tutor actually taught me, which I will never forget is... (laughs) Just stop focusing on how you're doing and focus on what you're doing. So moving from ego orientation to task orientation. Mm-hmm. And if you just focus on the what, like, and you can allow yourself to be immersed, the the ha- that how is and succeeding, quote unquote, doing well will emerge when we are deeply invested in what we're doing. So focus on what. If you find yourself self-scrutinizing, you are not in flow. One of the key mm-hmm. features of that flow state is <laughs> that the ego tends to dissolve, which is yeah. really cool. Yeah. And that's what we hope will happen uh, for our doctors. Of, of course, when we're in training and the challenges are beyond that which we are currently capable of, there's a lot of resistance to flow. We're, you know, very anxious or um just feel feeling like. I don't know what to say next to this patient because I don't have that automatic like I just don't have the unconscious awareness that I need to have to be really good at this job. And then we have to do a lot of normalizing as teachers and as mentors that you're not supposed to be good at this yet. Like you're exactly where you need to be or not and help help identify where the students weaknesses are so that they can become more masterful.
0: Yeah, and I'll just tie in that self esteem chapter in Choose Growth, where there is an imposter syndrome, or um, what what is it's called something else in the literature. It's not called imposter syndrome. What's it called? The imposter phenomenon. Imposter phenomenon. Yeah. So it actually talks about you know if you feel like an imposter, and if you do feel that way, then you're you are thinking about how am I doing?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that brings us, um, and there's so much to unpack here, but for the sake of (laughs) time, there's attention spans vitality. So vitality is about what makes us feel alive and awake and alert and ready to attack our day and not, not attack but uh, but really get to our day-to-day tasks with vigor. Mm-hmm. And within the vitality piece that's where I really zoom in on the mind-body connection. Uh, The very powerful effects of placebo, the best drug that we have in all of (laughs) medicine, in my humble opinion, as well as, you know, the basics, taking care of our, our sleep, our nutrition, and our physical activity. So those are the pieces we really zoom into. And I think what's so important and what struck me when I was in medical school, sitting in lectures all day is how static we are yeah. and how even from day one of medical training, we're like sitting down in a lecture hall. People are bringing us pizza and donuts to try to boost our morale. Yeah. And it's just so antithetical to what we know is Optimal for human functioning and human performance. So, really trying to um, question some of those norms and help us demonstrate and role model for our patients some health uh, health forward behaviors.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's really challenging because these foundational health pieces often, like you said, you get busy and you start focusing on, well, I got to get this thing done, and you don't take care of yourself, mm-hmm. and it's hard to break that pattern of putting yourself first especially whenever you have a deadline or you have to be somewhere or you have all these people depending on you
1: exactly and you know I'll have medical students say I don't have time to go to the gym like I'm stuck in the library or I'm you know behind on studying and what I challenge them with is when you have just gotten some cardiovascular activity or have a session in the gym Even just 10 minutes can help you focus better on the studying that you're doing, Um, getting some fresh air, taking a walk outside. We as humans, we evolve to move such that when we are sitting down and static and on the couch, our brains are not primed to be active and alert. That's when our evolutionary ancestors were, you know, when we were resting and in one place, that's when we were conserving energy. That's when we were in rest mode. So... For us today, and, you know, of course, you know this, that when we are not moving, our brains are not having an opportunity to work optimally. And, you know, working with clinicians, they want to see the data. And that's what I show them. I, I show them the research on this. And um, I think that's what's, what's most compelling and really specific for healthcare is that there, there are numbers and science to back up all of these things.
0: Yeah and that 10 minutes makes a difference it's not all or none like it doesn't have to be this crazy workout
1: that you do exactly we you don't have to run a marathon to <laughs> the benefits of physical activity. And what's so cool is like all the research that shows just even reconceptualizing what you may already be doing as physical activity, adding a placebo effect to my daily commute to work or taking the stairs instead of the elevator, all of that actually shows physiologic benefits. And that comes from Aaliyah Crum's work and Ellen Langer's work. Um, So there's amazing work in this what I would call positive medicine. I don't think they affiliate with that title, but um, bringing in that research on placebo is really central to what I'm teaching my students.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So accomplishment.
1: So accomplishment. <laughs> okay. This. Um, so this is central to the PERMA model or achievement. And what I think is different about the way I talk about it specifically in positive medicine is that it's redefining success as a non-zero-sum game, such that whereas we think about in health in medicine, that sort of someone has to get the A and someone has to get the C when we're all graded on a bell curve. But how do we break that down and really think about how to achieve our own success in tandem with the success of those around us? So I... I focus on two main bodies of work. One is grit, Angela Duckworth's baby and field about passion and perseverance for our long-term goals. And then this idea of otherishness, which comes from Adam Grant and Reb Rebeli's work on having an orientation toward others. And that means having some healthy selfishness with Scott, which Scott Barry Kaufman talks about, and really um, understanding how to set our goals and set our sights on things that will not just further our own egos, but that can really help others in the process. And this is really accessible to healthcare workers because virtually many of us with a few exceptions, maybe some nefarious exceptions came into healthcare to help other people. Yet along the way, it can become hyper-competitive. And when our egos are feeling depleted, we can feel really bad about ourselves, negative to other people, which leads to self-comparison and yeah, so how do we conceptualize accomplishment as something that everyone can win? And we do this great exercise, which I learned from MAP, called the Reciprocity Ring, where we normalize the act of giving. So all of my students come into class with an ask, something that they're struggling with or need help with. And we know the biggest barrier to get achieving our goals and getting the help we need is not asking for help. So and in medicine, this is hugely problematic because if we're too scared to ask for help, someone's life could be on the line. So we want to practice asking for help. So everyone comes into the classroom with something they need help with. And by the end of the class, everyone has crowdsourced a solution to their task from someone else. So I might come in and say, for example, I'm looking for help developing my website. And within the group, someone will say, oh my God, my husband's a computer program. I'm sure a computer programmer, I'm sure he could sit with you for 30 minutes and give you the rundown. And everyone shares their ask and everyone within the group crowdsources. And then it's up to the asker. So the person who's building the website to follow up with the person that offered to help in order to close that loop and get the solution to their problem. You can hear the sirens. I live next to the hospital
0: (laughs) in New York. I mean, it wouldn't be a true experience if we didn't hear sirens. (laughs)
1: Exactly. So anyway, so um, the reciprocity ring is an example of normalizing the act of asking for help, which is often the biggest barrier to fulfilling our goals.
0: Yeah. And asking for help is a muscle and it's humbling
1: to ask for help. Absolutely. Absolutely. But often we realize it really reduces the friction and can save us a lot of time and mental energy and actually facilitate connection. Mm -hmm. So then there's meaning, which is perhaps my favorite revamp element to talk about because it's so personal to everyone and it can take on so many different meanings. This is one where we spend a lot of time being very open just talking about different theories of meaning we talk a lot about man's search for meaning and do some reading from Viktor Frankl and talk about logotherapy we talk about the narrative self and how to practice self-authorship that one potent pathway to meaning is through storytelling and we practice telling our own stories and and creating narratives of some troubling things that happen to us it's where we talk about post-traumatic growth and how to think about hard times in a way that focuses on, not that doesn't dismiss the pain, but can hold with that pain some of the opportunities that, that things that have created that wouldn't have otherwise been created in the absence of those things. And we talk about how to find our meaning on a day-to-day basis and what we're doing. I think that it's so easy for people to go into medicine with the purpose of having a meaningful career and then feel so fundamentally disconnected from it in just the day to day slog. So it's really thinking about what our meaning is, the multiple paths to meaning that we hold, how to live by our values, and then how to connect with them with the meaning that exists already in our lives.
0: Yeah. I mean, this sounds like something that every profession needs, not just medicine, but I mean, medicine definitely needs this. But I think everybody listening is probably nodding their head saying, yeah, like I I can see how I need this in my life too.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what's so funny about this. Like I talk about positive medicine, which is just bringing all of these concepts to medicine. We also have positive law, positive education. Mm -hmm. And it's when you have someone with this expertise in positive psychology, like this is our this is what we do. It's called the Applied Positive Psychology program because it's all about folks in different industries just bringing this work and applying it into various workplaces and institutions. So it has been just a gift to have have access to some of this research and knowledge and and to be able to uh, apply it and ho- hopefully change some people's lives in the process.
0: Yeah, so speaking of positive emotions. Positive emotions.
1: So Revamp ends with positive emotions, which is just like the lived experience of the positive, our affect, our moods. And I think what's so important is not that we promote positive emotions at the expense of negative emotions, but Mm -hmm. understand the different utility that positive emotions have in our lives. So, whereas negative emotions can, they really serve to narrow our attention. So, when we are angry, we want to fight. When we are sad, we, we want to withdraw, we cry. There are very specific, what are called thought action tendencies. So you have a thought or an emotional state, and then there's an associated action. Positive emotions don't work like that. Positive emotions have been shown to actually open and expand our minds, leading to the creation of multiple possibilities. And Barbara Fredrickson, who's like the mother of positive emotions, calls this the broaden and build theory of positive emotions, that positive states help us think of new possibilities. They help us accrue resources, develop more positive relationships. And then it becomes this virtuous cycle and this upward spiral, as she she calls it of positive emotions. And one way to get more positive emotions is to practice savoring them. So positive things happen to us all the time, but we're not wired to focus on them. We're wired to focus on the negative because that's much more critical for our survival. So we practice different forms of savoring, which um, we created into an intervention uh, in Choose Growth, which is a really cool part of um, the transcendence chapter. We talk about research that shows that some of the That positive emotions are actually a core ingredient that differentiate people who thrive in the wake of adversity and those who really languish and um, don't do well. It's not the ability to just be positive, but it's the ability to hold positive emotions like gratitude and hope and appreciation side by side with negative emotions when, when bad things happen. Um, So we do a lot of practicing and really challenging folks to just pay more attention to positive emotions and not to feel guilty for having them, but really to give ourselves permission to sit in those positive states without chasing them as the ultimate ultimate goal. Because what we know is that chasing happiness just can sometimes drive it further away.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so something that I'm thinking about here is, first of all, this is fantastic that this is being taught at the base level to new medical doctors who are coming into the field. But how about the doctors who have been in there for quite some time and have built in this rut of negativity and burnout and maybe they've lost the meaning because they're, you know, maybe they've moved away from seeing patients and now they're more of in a leadership role where they can't connect with that meaning part anymore. How can those doctors start practicing some of these if they feel like they don't have any basis to start?
1: Totally. So there are practical ways ways to learn this. I actually teach an online course of called Thrive RX. Um, it's completely web based and asynchronous, so you never have to show up and have a conversation with me. But it's me and three of my colleagues who've pre recorded some of these lectures and videos um, for practicing clinicians who are busy and in the workplace and don't have time to like come attend my course at seven mm-hmm. pm on a Monday night. They need this so badly, you know the. Career physicians who have been in it for a while, who are balancing their families and have so much riding on them, as you know, financially and and feeling just totally like if they like they may want to leave medicine, but if they did, they would not be able to support their families, and mm. um, that leads to a whole other layer of stress. And um, you know, we don't learn financial independence as doctors. We just uh, no one's teaching that to us. So that's those are all core components of the Thrive RX program. But even though it's just listening to this, uh, I think the best way to start is to think about which one of those revamp elements just like sticks with you and feels really like that bucket feels really full and think about how do I maybe use that, that really full bucket to embrace some, one of these other components. So for example, maybe like, I don't feel like I have a really great sense of meaning right now, but I have a very solid relationship. So how might I really sort of dig into that relationships bucket and leverage some of my connections to maybe see what paths to meaning there are, whether that is through conversation or um, through shared experience, going to, you know, experience a sunset together or see a ballet to get some of that awe that's associated with that sense of meaning. I I think all of these revamp elements, they are like, they raise each other to exponents. So like savoring with another person is always going to make, in my opinion, will make savoring more powerful. Having deep sense of engagement in something that's meaningful makes both of those elements shine. Working towards a goal that is deeply pro-social in nature, for example, so working on accomplishment or working on a goal that is going to enhance our vitality. They mutually reinforce one another and can really uplift our well-being. And these things are not just strictly something we have to do in the workplace. I think that if we can work on these things in our personal lives and outside of work, they tend to trickle in and find their way in. It could just be, um, you know, starting a a meeting with a conversation of like, what's something everyone's grateful for today? Or I listened to this podcast and they talked about uh, vitality. Like, what is something that everyone is doing to care for their body? And if you're not doing something, like, what's a goal that we can set together? Just starting to bring these topics into the normal conversations we have with our colleagues can just be a powerful first step.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like harnessing your strengths in order, in order to do that is super
1: key. Definitely. If you are someone who is very high in uh, humor, you may use humor as a way to bring some positive emotions into the workplace. Or if you're someone who's really like you are all about appreciation of beauty, you might suggest a work outing of like going to a museum or seeing a show or enhance a relationship through one of the strengths that you possess.
0: I can't believe our time is already up. I feel like we just started
1: talking. (laughs) Where can people find more? So you can find me at Jordan Feingold on all sort of social um, Jordan H Feingold on Facebook. I have uh, on Instagram and a a Norby page. You can see all a lot of my key research and I'll provide some links so um, folks can actually read the, the capstone where I started talking about positive medicine for the first time.
0: I can't wait to read it. Well, Jordan, I'm so grateful to you. I'm so grateful for all the work that you're doing and for the energy that you're putting out there. And I know it's making a huge difference and it's an honor to get to chat with you.
1: Thank you for having me. And I can't wait for you to be applying positive psychology.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that episode. I think that there is so much involved in the field of positive psychology and it applies in so many places. And it's something that has made a huge difference in my life. Positive psychology is a key part of my coaching, a key part of my course. And I am passionate about applying the field of positive psychology to sports. So thank you again for listening to this podcast. I know there are literally thousands of podcasts out there. And please hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss any future episodes and leave us a review because that really helps the show find others. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See you right back here next week.